Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of Building a Bridge. My name is Jesse Brizanine. My name is Jared Countess, and our mission is to empower people to use their voice to build a bridge beyond race relations, creating unity and understanding, effectively raising the consciousness of humanity. Last week, we had a discussion about languaging and how we use languaging, and we also shared a story about what we can all learn from the Taliban and how we interact with one another through difficult encounters and how those, those choices of whether to exert force or to find a common ground and what kind of outcomes they can produce. And then this week, I'll let Jared kick us off. So this week, um, we asked uh, some questions on the board. We're going to go through those questions one by one. But first, I want to um, touch on something that a friend felt that we didn't hit on hard enough when we touched on the topic of white privilege, right? Um, so my friend specifically wanted me to, to, to go back and to talk about um, white privilege as it refers to people in Appalachia. Um, so when we talked about white privilege, we made it clear, right? Or we tried to make it clear, I tried to make it clear that um, one, I think the term is, um, what's the word, inflammatory, right? It is a trigger word, right? It creates emotional response to people because one, nobody wants to feel privileged, right? Like they have, and some people, even people that do have privilege don't want you to like throw it in their face, right? Two, everybody has trials and tribulations, right? Everybody has problems, everybody has sorrows, right? Um, and the term, you know, to a large extent, right? It implies that white people don't have any of those things, right? And so my, my buddy is like really keen on like, well, what about white people in Appalachia who are born? If you don't know anything about white people in the Appalachian mountains, um, it's an economically deprived area, right? It is, you know, commercially forgotten, so to speak. Um, used to be like people would, mining would go out there. Um, it's almost similar to, to where you're from, Jesse, in terms of like a logging country, but that industry is almost dead in the United States of America, right? Um, at least in terms of the, its ability to support an entire community. Maybe a few people could make money from it, but you know, not a, not a large community where you're talking about like thousands of people where they would have been employed you know, 50, 60 years ago, right? And so what happens to those people when they lose those jobs, they don't have that economic you know, opportunity is no longer there, right? Um, they, you know, they, they grow up and they have to share clothing. They don't even have, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, not even basic amenities or, um, I remember I was driving through Appalachia, um, one time, which is a beautiful drive though. My, <laughs> it's a beautiful drive. Um, I was driving down South to, uh, visit my wife's uh, parents. As a matter of fact, um, they live just outside of Appalachia because they are from the mountains in Laos and Thailand. So they like the isolation to a certain extent and they like farm and they like to hunt right they like that lifestyle um and so and they're not they don't want for a lot right they don't you know what i mean like her parents don't that's where her parents kind of retired to right they don't want for a lot of stuff like that they don't they don't mind you know i make my own clothes and blah 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 but if you grow up in that area you are not going to have access to the best schools not going to have access to the best amenities. When I was going to say is you don't even have like stores aren't close by. You might have to drive 20, 30 minutes to your Walmart, which is finally there, right, to buy something. You know what I mean? And so what do you say to those people when you say make a comment? 
like white privilege because they definitely grew up in America, you know, in the most abundant country in the world, living in a state of, you know, unabundance, right? They're not, they don't have that. And so, um, you know, when he asked me this in person, I was like, I really don't want to go here today. I was really thinking about talking about something else. And I could tell he wanted to go there. And I was like, well, we said it was an inflammatory term and I kind of left it alone. Um, but he really wanted us to address it. And so um, that is, in effect, the issue with a term like white privilege. It's why it's so inflammatory, right? Because we know, like, subconsciously, we know two things, all right? So I'm going to say this, right? We know that there are people that no matter their skin tone, grow up in underprivileged situations, grow up poor, grow up with less access to amenities, you know, gold, blah, 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 right? And then they don't have a lot of things to help them get out of those situations in terms of programs and things like that. And I think that was really what his main point is with people in Appalachia is like, there aren't any like outreach programs to really help those people you know, acclimate to a different lifestyle, right? And to grow. And that's kind of part of the platform that, you know, Donald Trump and even some Democrats have talked about in terms of, you know, introducing other skills to people who grow up in those areas so that they can be a part of the larger economic American society, right? <laughs> and, um, and so um, my response, right, is the how do you then build white privilege into that? And it's just to say that like, um, if they leave that community, right, their white skin is not a detriment to their image, if that makes any kind of sense. Were they blessed with any, any other things? Um, no, but in this country, this is my opinion, right? The only skin color that can be a detriment to how you're perceived purely based on your skin tone is black, right? In terms of, and when I say a, a detriment, I mean, in terms of what people's preconceived notions may be about you in terms of your work ethic, your morals, um, your level of aggressiveness or blah, 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 blah. And so when people talk about white privilege, they're just, they're, uh, I think some people are layering on all that stuff. Like your life is blessed. What the fuck are you talking about? You don't have, and I think that's a huge problem. And I, that's why I kind of try not to use the term when I talk to people at all. <laughs> right. I've, matter of fact, I, I can't even say I try not to. I've never used it outside of a discussion where we, where someone else was actually talking about it. Does that make any kind of sense? Like I've never like brought that, or oh, that's your white privilege or blah, 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 blah. Only talked about it in terms of, you know, um, somebody talked to me about it or asked me about it. And uh, for me, it's, it's, it's really just, it's just that. Like, if a cop pulls me over, you know, his threat level, he, as my other Mexican buddy said, his threat level is like a, a eight or a nine, right? And, um, you know, he pulls my friend over who asked me this question, his threat level is like a five or a six. But if you knew us, it should be completely reversed, <laughs> right? If you knew who we were, his threat level with my friend should be like an eight or a nine. His threat level with me should be like a five or a six. One, my friend always has a gun on him. Two, two my friend is a decently aggressive guy. Now, would he ever do anything? Is he fucking a lawbreaker, all that stuff? No, but he's a much more aggressive person than I am in terms of his personality, his demeanor, and everything else, right? 
And, um, and so that's, that is the, I think for people who think through the term white privilege, right. Um, that is, that is like the basis of it is that kind of a benefit of the doubt. And uh, so I just want to clear that up, right. Big issue, biggest issue with the term is that there are people who are born, no matter their skin tone under fucking privilege and not with a lot of advantages given to other people in life. Right. And there are white people who are born in this country underprivileged who are forgotten, right? They are forgotten. They are ignored. They are not, you know what I'm saying? Do you, I hopefully you guys understand what I'm saying to you. Um, and that's, and that is, and that's, and, um, that's a, that's a problem. And when you tell them that they're privileged, right. And you look at like where some of the hardest leaning right things are you could look to like a west virginia or something stuff like that and um and it's because you know some people tell them that you know they're blessed because they're white and they're like well fucking you don't do you see my life <laughs> did you see that i didn't have run some of those people don't have running water right um you know what i mean and you know they live in shacks and all this other kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 and you telling somebody that has a life like that and lived a life like that, that they're privileged, um, it's a smack in the face. And that's why it is an emotional trigger word. <laughs> and, and you need to be careful, as we said, when you make those statements, because you're launching rockets and you're firing verbal bullets. And that um, is, it's not just divisive but it usually is going to get bullets fired back at you. <laughs> and next thing you know, you know, it's it just, it's an escalating thing. Right. Um, so we, we should, we should approach this. We could approach our differences in our conversations with a little bit more as Jesse always says, compassion and try to seek to understand as opposed to, you know, um, inflame and name call and, you know, pull those emotional triggers. It's like, hmm. Maybe not, maybe not the best way to get your point across. Yeah. And just if I could add two things to that too, Jared, real quick, before we move on. Uh, one of the things I think you said when we, we had this discussion a few weeks ago on it, which was so, which was so appropriate was no human being wants to have their, their struggles seem discounted or insignificant. And the nature I think of assigning <clears throat> and labeling someone with, the white privilege is is basically to say you suffered less than I have, right? And I think the person who who grows up white, super poor, maybe doesn't have running water, uh, suffers some sort of physical, sexual, emotional abuse, drug abuse, whatever it is, is likely going to have a real challenge with saying that they're privileged to somebody who grows up black in a a household with loving parents where there is no sexual, physical, emotional abuse. And they're able to live what we would, what we would all stereotype as a quote unquote normal life. Okay. So, so I get, I'm going to build on it. Right. Yeah. So I'll get, I'll give him some more, some more credit, even just listen to you having verbalized like that. That's why I think his LeBron James comment came from. Right. Or, or, you know, even why some people are incensed by Colin Kaepernick, which I never really understand fully, but, you know, he, as he expressed to me, right, you have this guy who was born extremely talented. This is Colin Kaepernick. I'm not even going to go into LeBron, LeBron James, who's born extremely cap, 
talented, right? Um, his parents abandoned him, right? But then he was adopted by a white upper middle class family, right? And, you know, and he's, you know, he's blood. Anybody that makes it to the NFL, and we talked about this, right? That makes it to a professional sport has certain talents and gifts that they're born with. Now, they may have used their work ethic or whatever to cultivate those gifts to get to where they're going. But again, the, 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 the poor white person growing up in Appalachia who hears that person telling them that they're privileged, right? And they know that that person has certain talents and gifts that were God-given, right? That it, it feels like more of a smack in the face. Yeah. You know, and and, um, and I think, don't get me, I think those people are the perfect people to deliver that message in terms of like um, Colin Kaepernick or a LeBron James or blah, 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 um, you know, other athletes, right? Um, because they have a large platform and they have a lot of people to touch. But when I hear that from a friend, right, and um, who also recognizes that there's a difference between blue and black and white in America, he knows that, you know what I mean? We've talked about that stuff too. But he's giving me that perspective of why does this piss people off, right? Why do people get angry beyond just the term white privilege? Why do people get angry when I hear when they hear this and it pushes them to so far to the other extreme that when they come out and speak is is I'm fucking angry, right? I'm mad, right? They're mad at the the athletes of blah 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 because they see them as blessed. Yes. Right. They see them as some people. You're doing something that I could never fucking do, no matter how hard I work, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And then you're complaining to me about this, this and this. So it's still hard for me because I understand where the athletes are coming from. Like, no matter how blessed I am. I'll never, I'll always be considered more dangerous or I might always be considered not quite as intelligent or I might always be considered blah, blah, blah. Or like my children who may not have the same blessings that I have may be in more danger. But the way I expressed that to one other person um, on a, on a, uh, on a Facebook feed was, you know, they're not talking about, they're not, they're not protesting because of poverty. They're not protesting because of gang violence. They're not protesting, um, you know, to have better schools in inner cities. They're not pro. They're not protesting the economic gap between Black people and the rest of the country. They're, so they're not protesting like there's so it's an economic disparity, huge that, that that limits the opportunities of people in Appalachian Mountains. They're not protesting any of that in terms of. Um, you know, black people. They're just protesting because they're like, uh, I'm, you know, society looks at me as more of a criminal or more likely to be a criminal because I'm black. And that means that a police officer or even an everyday citizen, you know, has a better chance of getting away with killing me because I'm black and I'm dangerous, right? Getting away with killing me because I'm black and I'm dangerous, right? Unjustifiably. And that's what the protest is coming from. And so I, I think that people need to recognize that I don't think that the, the, the protest is not, it's not about, do people talk about economic disparity and blah, 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 yeah, but that's not, they were never, the ghetto's been there. The whole time people have been playing basketball, American sports and all this other kind of stuff. Nobody was like, I'm not gonna play because black people are poor. 
They weren't like that. They don't, they, you're absolutely fucking right. They're not concerned about the economic thing <laughs> in terms of like, I'm not going to play basketball because this is an issue or blah, blah, blah. Some of them do give back to the community, LeBron James, go to schools and all this kind of stuff in the neighborhoods, but he's not protesting that. His protest is this guy got shot and killed. It was wrong and no, no one seems to care. And that's, and, and so it's, it's, and that's my message to the white people who get upset about them protesting. They're not, they're not, they're not trying to say, you know, they're not trying to say, you give me reparations. They're not trying to say, change the economic structure of the United States of America. They're just saying, you know, I think really selfishly even, fucking, I'm about my kid this fucking bends. And if my kid gets pulled over and killed because somebody thinks he's a fucking drug dealer, I'm going to be really, really upset. <laughs> and I think that's really what it is. Like, it's like, I don't, I, they, I think, I think that's what the projection is really. Right. It's really, it's, it's ultimately personal. It's like, I have worked really hard or I have given my kids and still my kids may, you know, grow up with all these privileges and blah, blah, blah but they're still more likely to be, they have to be, they're in a more dangerous situation than my white neighbor's kids are. That's not fucking right. In the white neighborhood, or not even white, in the wealthy neighborhood that I've brought them up in, that I've brought them to, you know what I mean? Like they have more danger getting pulled over by a cop. And it might even be, and I think they're even projecting it so far as it might even be more dangerous for them because they're going to be black and they're going to look like they have money. You know what I mean? And so it's going to look like my son might even, he really looks like he might be a drug dealer. But I gave him all of that because yeah. I've worked hard to be successful. So <laughs> I really think the projection is there. And I, I think if we could rewind and be like, break that down, right? Then then people will kind of be like, oh, okay, I get it. That's why they're, that's why, that's why they're protesting. I don't, even, I don't even think some of them are necessarily even all that upset. You know, if you talk about Black Lives Matter, that black people die in the hood. That's why people don't talk about black on black violence too often. Like once I get out of the hood, I, do I care? Yeah, sort of, maybe I do, right? But not like, I don't care like I'm moving back, right? I don't care like, you know what I'm saying? And this is, this is me being super raw, <laughs> being super raw. I care like I wanna inspire and teach and lead, but I don't care like I'm gonna get there in the fight and fucking like try to break shit up, whatever. But I care about this guy getting pulled over and killed or this happening there because I don't want to see my kid end up in a situation. I think it's I think most of it's children, right? Or family member thought process getting in a situation where they were not doing the wrong thing, right? And they still ended up getting hurt or dying. Right. And and then and then it being you know, somewhat justified because they were dressed a certain way or because they fit a certain profile, right? And like, that's that's the scary thing for that's And I think that's where all of it comes from, even though white privilege was thought about by a, a white female. <laughs> and I think one of the things would be a really cool topic for us to explore, maybe we could do this next week, is, is where some of those perceptions come from. We, I think we've talked about that. And, and if I could just add maybe one or two more kind of outside thoughts, one, the devil's advocate to the white privilege thing, maybe they both kind of are, but 
there would be people who would argue that the actual privilege, the greatest privilege they've been afforded in life is the privilege of growing up impoverished and underprivileged. And that that's what made them who they are because they, they grew up without, it made them strive for wanting it because they grew up in adversity it made them strive for achievement because they grew up in with challenging circumstances. It gave them something to aspire for, you know, the, the basketball player who, who may not have been thinking about, you know, changing, changing culture in the hood, but grew up really poor and underprivileged may have very well looked at because I'm poor and underprivileged, but I've seen a LeBron James rise to it. If I play basketball really hard, it's going to make me work harder. And it became that work ethic because they didn't have, they felt they didn't have a choice. That was what drove them to succeed. And I think that that, I think that that innate human drive does not discriminate between white, black, brown, green, blue on pigmentation. I think it's a, it's an innate, it's a, choice that humans have in in those circumstances right is is and so and then this would be the other piece of it too my question for all of us to consider is why why do we invest so much time energy and effort into uh, discussing matters of privilege when that same time energy and effort could be invested in discussing well how does how do two people who grow up in similar circumstances how does the one achieve and, and move beyond and how does the other one not because it comes back to this. If, if, we're, if we're spending our time, if we're spending our time trying to, so we have five minutes right now. I have five minutes. And Jared and I have five minutes together. So I have, I have a choice. I can spend five minutes trying to convince Jared about why life has been unfair and harsh and he's got advantages over me that I don't. And then the five minutes is gone. So maybe then at the end of five minutes, Jared understands that why my life has been unfair and harsh. And maybe then he understands that he's, he's had it better than me. Or I have five minutes and I see Jared who has achieved a certain level of success or whatever it is, something that I want, something that I'm after. And I could use those five minutes to pick his brain and say, well, Jared, how did you do that? What did you do here? What was the situation? Who did you talk to? How did you do it? Is there somebody that you can introduce me to that might be able to give me an opportunity? That time is going to pass no matter what. And it goes back to this kind of broader thing of, do we really want to pass that time arguing over matters of privilege based off of, of skin tone when probably most of us have some sort of privilege and most of us have some sort of lack of privilege. And, and you're innately like Jared said it so perfectly when you use language like that, it's going to be like launching bombs and you, you probably can anticipate bombs are going to be returned fire or you could use it again to try to build a bridge and figure out, okay, what, what did he do? What did he do? And I, I think these are the questions that we have to ask ourselves because it is going to be so entirely easy to get sidetracked into, into discussions and maybe arguments and disagreements about things like a matter of privilege that then that five minutes is going to pass and we're going to miss out on the opportunity of how do we can build the bridge? How can we achieve? How can we move forward? How can we, how can we learn and grow from one another? So I think the opportunity to each of us is to ask ourselves, well, what, what do we believe is right 
what do we believe is wrong? What do we, what are we emotionally, morally invested in? Right? Is there a, is there a fundamental humanness in this whole dialogue that we're after? And if so, focus on that, have that be your home base, your foundation, your anchor, and recognize that people who may not, people may use terms like privilege or whatever it could be, privilege, racist, all these types of things to try to communicate how they're feeling. And that just might be a linguistic limitation that they have or a linguistic choice that they're making. And if you see it as a deterrent to achieving a, an objective that you're after that you believe is going to better and advance humanity, then you have the choice to not engage in those kinds of discussions or to acknowledge someone and say, I hear you, I see you, I recognize what you're saying. And what I'd be wildly curious about right now is how did you, even with your disadvantages, how did you do what you did? How did you climb that ladder? How did you achieve? What choice did you make? How did you, because what I really would love to do, Jared, right now is to pick your brain and figure out what made you different from the other kid who grew up next door to you in the similar circumstances and got you to where you are because success leaves clues. And if I can look at the things that you are and figure that out, just the same as if I'm going to go to Kmart or Ikea to buy a desk, it's going to come out with a little blueprint that's going to have the same blueprint for everyone. And we know if we follow that blueprint, we're going to be able theoretically to replicate what that desk is supposed to do, put it together step by step. And our, we can do that <clears throat> to some degree with ourselves. You know, we, we learn how to read by going, Sam can run. And that's a model that we've taught across, which has allowed most of us to be probably learn to be literate from that very same model. You know, we learn to do a layup. Most of us learn to do a layup the very the same way. And so these are things that I think we can all challenge ourselves to begin to ask is, okay, I have this five minutes. Do I want to get into the, the debate about why the, <clears throat> the black kid growing up in Compton is more underprivileged than the white guy growing up in Appalachia or vice versa, or do I want to get into a five minutes of conversation, figure out how did that black kid growing up in Compton and how did that one white kid growing up in Appalachia rise above their circumstances and get, get out of it? Yes. And if they were able to do it, if one can, probably many could. You and know so, what? Yeah. You know, the, the most interesting thing about that conversation, and this is just me taking a guess, you would find so many similarities. Dude, 100%. Between those two people right? In terms of how they thought about things, how they, how they reached out for help. Yep. You know, how, how, how someone came into their life and gave them this little bit of inspiration. They ran with it. Right. And they could, one of them could go on to become a basketball player. Right. And the other one could go on to become a business exec. And it could be either way. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, well, uh, who was it? Uh, Pistol Pete Maravich was, I think, a uh, an Appalachian born white dad. Yeah, I think anyway. <laughs> Right. So I had to think of one. I was gonna say Larry Bird, but I think he was like more Indiana. Yeah, he was French lick French lick Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But like but you but if you listen to that to that to that story, right, you would you would hear like so many some I attacked it like this. I was gonna do this. I, I realized that if I 
you know, if I practice and I was doing this every day and I made this rule and then this guy told me this and I was like, oh, that ad, I'll bring that in, right? Or I listened to this person they, or I heard this person, I knew they were full of shit and that yeah. wasn't the fucking way to go, right? Yeah. And you'll hear it like, and you could like, bing, 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 so many similarities because, you know, pathway of success. I want to pick this book up, right? It's probably backwards in this, this is called Mindset by Carol DeWitt. And she talks about two different things, a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset, right? And so what you're, what, when I'm listening to you talk, like how you approach that conversation, right? Um, one, when I approach the conversation um, about, and I'm coming from, anytime I approach a conversation and I'm coming from explaining to you my past, right? In terms of like looking for empathy, sympathy, blah, blah, blah. If I'm looking for anything other than, you know, heartfelt communication, Right. If I'm looking to argue underprivileged versus other, you know what I'm saying? If I'm looking to argue those two points, right, I'm coming to that conversation with a fixed mindset. I'm still, I'm still, you know, there. Right. And um, if I'm coming to a conversation, like, let me learn. Right. Let me understand, like, where you're coming from or how you got out of that situation. I'm already thinking about growth. Right. I'm thinking about the next step, two steps down the line in terms of, you know, building a bridge in and of itself requires a growth mindset. Yes. In and of itself, you have to, you, you, you have to believe that you can build that. You have to, it's, it requires the thought process of being open enough to say that there are similarities between us and there always are. And, 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 and no offense, the failures, there are similarities between us and the failures and the people that fail and the people that fuck up. Right. Just like there are similarities in, in, in different groups and people that have seen success. Right. There, you know, what I mean, and everything in between. Right. Yes. There are similarities between the people who failed and the people who succeeded. <laughs> I'm so grateful you brought that book up because. And I, I, I want to tread lightly here on this because I don't want to get too much into my own my own personal opinions and conspiracy theories and all these types of things. But I, I'll just I'll preface what I'm going to say with this. I think that the biggest businesses in the world are, are fear and mediocrity and fear and mediocrity thrive on a fixed mindset. Mm. And then when we look at who are the purveyors of some of the biggest forms of fear and mediocrity, we would, we would say probably be the media, right? Especially the larger media. And you can all, you can all even recall back one of the earlier videos we did where we, we brought up the paper and there was the white guy who was accused of homicide and there was a black guy who was accused of, of, of crashing a truck or stealing a truck. And he had like an 80% page of the paper and the white guy had this little side clipping. You will often rarely hear in mainstream media reporting anything that is attributed to, to a growth mindset. Where it's going in and, and interviewing people and asking, the, how did you do this? What did you do? How did you overcome this? Because if we are able to start to problem solve and figure out what really need would we have for the kind of the kind of news that we traditionally see, most of the news we traditionally see in, in at least the main or broader stream is is very fixed mindset. It's a it's a cause and effect type thing, and often with very limited, without the full picture of information. Yeah. And I think they have become at a point now where they're unapologetic about pushing out a narrative that is going to get some sort of emotional reaction or charge. The more we are afraid or we're more that we feel 
oppressed or held back or in mediocrity, the more we might want to have to tune in and we have these emotional charges. You know, I'll, I'll use something different. We're, what is this? It's September now. So here in the U.S., we're now going on month six of COVID, like locking down, sheltering place, having some sort of restriction in our life. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on TV. So I'll give that disclaimer first. What I do understand about this disease is that many of the folks who it seems it becomes fatal for have some sort of pre-existing condition, right? They, and most of those are things like, as I understand, it might be diabetes, overweight, heart disease, many of which are man-made, meaning that we're making it by our lifestyle, diet, behavior, so on and so forth, right? I don't know about any of you. And if you have, please share it because I would love to see this. I have yet to observe in the last six months of reporting a one of the main media outlets saying, you know what, what we're finding is that the majority of people for who this illness is fatal, it's because of they have some pre-existing condition. Meaning that if we all lost weight and took these steps to improve our health, maybe it'd make us better prepared to fight it. So living in the United States where 40% of the population is classified as overweight or obese, here are the three things that you can begin doing right now that will help you lose weight. Well, right so, now, now think, think about this. Let me just give less. The, the, and if the average person is like 20 to 30 pounds, let's just say that classifies as overweight or obese. If you're losing a conservative five pounds a month, you know, a little over one and a quarter pounds a week, you have now, if that was the kind of dialogues that we were having, you would have lost 30 pounds. If that was the kind of growth mindset material we were putting out, we would have the fittest and healthiest country in the world. But it's not that. It's, it's the ticker on the top and where you can see the fatalities go up in real time, the case numbers go up in real time. And so this is something to really consider. When we're in fixed mindset, we're not able to learn and grow. Humans, we've gotten to where we are is through growth. The reason that we have the problems that we have today and we're not dealing with some of the problems that some of like the more rural and isolated countries around the world are dealing with is because of growth, of growth mindset. There's this constant question of how can I improve? How can I make this better? How can I overcome? How can I build? And goes back to that same five minutes. If we're having a discussion on you have privilege over me, okay, we might understand somebody's, we might understand, but can we also seek to understand while growing and building, you know, and that's that building a bridge piece together. So anyways, sorry, I, I cut you. No, 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 no. I, I, I was, I was going to say the also thing that they haven't talked about is to me, when I think about it, like, when they were first talking about the dangers of this disease, right? And it was first coming out of China, they were like, it was gonna be more dangerous when it hit the American public because we're fatter and unhealthier, right? And then after it hit the American public, like in the numbers for America started to go up, they never went back to, it's because we're fatter and unhealthier, right? And it's like, well, you only touch people when they get sick. And it's like, we know, and they know, and they talked about it, that at first, when they first talked about it, they were like, probably up to 50 times the number of people who have been tested and tested positive have had it, right? So probably that number has gone down because they do more massive testing, right? But in 
other countries, almost nobody is as fat and as sick as the United States is, right? In terms of like man-made sicknesses, right? Like your fucking lifestyle has made you unhealthy, right? Almost no countries as bad as we are. Canada's kind of close, you know, maybe like some Mexico, but really nobody's really, like really knocking on our door. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean, in terms of that. And so when they talk about numbers and America blowing up and the amount of people who were like heavily affected by it, and that's how we know, right? Because people didn't get tested until they knew they were sick, right? And felt sick, right? That's one of the reasons why people in America just aren't as, aren't as healthy, generally. Generally just are not. And, you know, that's something that we we want to, we want to ignore certain possible solutions and ignore underlying causes of problems, right? Yeah, and and, and, and we like to we like to to band aid treat things because there's there's really no money in that. There's money in testing. There's state money now. It's really coming out like how much money you know uh, uh, the the state makes per you know positive COVID test. We got to move forward. We're going to stop, but there, but, but yeah, we got to, we got to move forward. We're going to go down a black hole really quick with that one. <laughs> because, because, because we, we touched on um, what the white privilege and Appalachia, and then we started to get into the, the kid in Compton versus the kid in Appalachia and their process of success or failure or blah, 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 blah. And how they, I think it's a great segue into uh, Wesley and um, Jamie's question for what we're going to talk about today in terms of uh, Wesley asked, um, you know, uh, how does your view on uh, race relations vary uh, by where you live, right? So Appalachia, <laughs> Compton, like city, rural region of the country. And then, um, you know, Jamie added into that, you know, uh, how does empathy and uh, sympathy play a role in, um, you know, racial relations? And how can we foster, more specifically, how can we foster, you know, empathy, um, you know, among among people? Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna to go to you. So how does, how do you think, yeah. you know, people's views on racial relations vary? Um, I think this, you know, you can probably pull from the conversation we went had before we went live, very, you know, in terms of where you live, city, rural, you know, region, um, county, and then, um, you know, like uh, the empathy, how do you foster empathy, you know, among people? Yeah, you know, I might also, I might also start to touch on some, Richard had mentioned interracial ra racism too, and so I might touch on that a little bit in this too. Ooh, and yeah. I, I'm going to give an example I, I recently chatted with this gentleman who is an immigrant from Somalia and he wrote a book called Call Me American, which is the best book I've read this year. It's a book that I think everybody should read. It's an incredible book on perspective and it's, I, I won't take up too much time talking about how profound this book has been for me and how amazing I think this guy is because I, I'll be probably talking about that in depth a long time now, but he grew up in Somalia and in Somalia, everybody looks, everybody's black for the most part, right? Black. And so what they have there is instead of having a, a, a white black problem, they have tribal problems. 
where it's, I think there's five primary tribes. And so if, you, if you're in a different tribe, because you're in a different tribe, you strongly dislike or hate one another. I think why this is pertinent to this is because, so in Jesse's opinion here, I've always wrestled with issues of race and racism because I do, I, when I, when I see Jared, I can acknowledge that our skin tone, our skin pigmentation is different. But when seeing Jared and knowing Jared, I know that there is a bazillion times things that make Jared and I more alike than this pigmentation thing that makes us appear different. And I think part of human history has always been is we find ways to, the nature of humanity is, right? We've, we survive by forming clans, tribes, coming together, working together. And in so doing innately, a byproduct of that is, is we start to find, we bond over similarities and differences. If we can find similarities, that's great. But if we sometimes we're forced into situations where we have to bond over, over differences in that, well, we both do not like them, or we both don't agree with what they're doing. And so while we may not like each other, we don't like what they're doing more. And so we'll, we'll come together. And this is, this, is an age, this is the nature of human history. You know, we fight wars, we've been fighting wars and killing one another since the dawn of time, because we figured out a way in our fixed mindsetness to, and in our perceived omnipotence, to decide that, well, my way is the right way. I know what that is and create dogma story behind it. And, and whether that's story or it could be religion for some, it could be, it could be tradition for others, whatever that is, we will hang our hat on it. And then we will already decide whether we like or dislike someone even not even if they look like us or not, but just because they're from a different tribe in, in areas where people may look more similar than they do different. Now over here in the US, we have such a melting pot that I think it's, a, it's almost a, a convenience afforded to us that we can, we can make our differences so superficial. We can just look at one another and say, oh, they look different than me, therefore they're different. And we can, we can form tribes and communities like that. You know, we don't have to go necessarily deeper and do deeper thinking about actually, why do we dislike them because of their religious practices or because of their cultural traditions or because of their, how they raise their children or something like that. Well, we have such a melting pot that we can just look at people and say, oh, skin pigment, you know, and that's it, right? And so, and we do these types of things all the time. We, we will bond with people who in other countries who speak English, even though they may be a, a starch Republican, we're a starch Democrat. Mm -hmm. But in that moment where we're in a country and we're trying to figure out the language and we feel that panic and overwhelm, like, shit, I don't know where I'm going. And we hear someone over there with saying the same words as us, we immediately bond and become fast friends. And so I think that one of the challenges with all of this is, is, is when we have a cultural or sometimes, and I don't think the word preclusion is the word I'm looking for, but I think it's a P word, but when there's a cultural, almost like a, a, a humanness of, 
we're still working with our biology that we had back in the day when we were having to do fight or flight, saber tooth tiger versus us. And now here we are today where we have technology, we're able to do these kinds of things in high definition, talk to one another. We are exposed to so much. We're able to have conversations like this. And I can sit here and talk to Jared who lives a few hundred miles away from me. And I can know Jared better than I might know people who live within two miles of me because of that. <laughs> and because of that, I'm able to learn that Jared is so much more like me than not. But I still have to wrestle with this, this evolutionary brain that is saying, I have to form tribes. I have to form communities. I got to look for like. I have to stay away from dislike because it's a matter of survival. And where I think that presents an incredible opportunity for each of us is to do two things. One, to acknowledge that and maybe give ourselves permission to acknowledge that human history is not rosy. You know, we, we've been killing each other for any reason that we can find to kill one another. And I think that most of the time, for most of human history, skin color has probably been one of the lower rungs of choice of killing one another. That just became something that started to come up more. I think it was probably religion. It was probably social class. It was probably those kinds of things. And then just as we've expanded and we've started to intermix with one another and starting to be around more people who don't look like us, that starts to become another thing. But number two is I think this gives us some permission to really start to ask ourselves, do I want to, when I'm, when I'm, when I am making a judgment or an assessment or interaction with a human being, do I want to make that judgment assessment interaction based off of looking for what divides us, what is different or what is more like us? If you are looking for differences, you will always find them. If you're looking for similarities, you will always find them. And that is the freaking beautiful part about it being a human being is we have that innate choice. If you are tuning in to certain medias, they are going to probably encourage you to look at differences because differences are oftentimes most divisive and differences are the things that we can go into fixed mindset because when we're only seeing differences, we're not seeing similarities. And we're going to start to create labels and terms that make us different than them and make sides and oppositions and think that we have to come and fight and, and, and duke it out and, and, and continue to kill one another for it because our way is the right way. I, I imagine the people who are radical Islamic can go and detonate suicide bombs and strap them to children and send them in to kill people who worship and, and believe religiously differently than they do. They probably think that their way is the right way. They probably think that is completely just. And when they are telling young children that, hey, it's a great honor to die in the name of this cause and that you'll be rewarded with all these types of things in the afterlife, they probably believe that it's the right thing to do. When they hijack planes and fly them into Twin Towers and slaughter thousands of people, they probably think it's the right thing to do. When certain cultures around the world practice genital mutilation, they probably think it's the right thing to do. Now, we over here have the, the luxury and ability to judge that and say that's not the right thing to do because of how we have grown together. And again, we can look at one another. So even if we might be, you know, we'll play this in an extreme example. 
if Jared and I are sitting down at the table and we have the head of the Ku Klux Klan on one end, we have Donald Trump on the other end, and we have Nancy Pelosi on the other end, and what, what's the other one? Antifa? Is that the organization? There you go. Antifa, there's, there's somewhere, <laughs> right? And then the heads of Black Lives Matter are there. Now, there's probably a lot of conflict. We get really upset, but if we go around and say, hey, what do you all think of genital mutilation? What do you all think of strapping bombs on the kids and sending them into religious temples and, and having them detonate them? We'll probably find some things that we agree upon really quickly. So I think these are the questions that we have to begin to ask ourselves first. And if we keep looking to media and, and especially I think right now, oftentimes political leadership, and I'll leave that as a broad generalization knowing that it is, and I, I don't want to, and forgive me, for doing that generalization, I don't think that it's gotten to a place yet where there's a vested enough interest in those entities to start to have these bigger dialogues because they feed into the fear and mediocrity place, which innately is what produces power and need and, and demand for tuning in. So it falls on us to have these kinds of conversations, not with one another, but just ourselves. You know, why is it that we, why is it that we do this? Why is it that we, we look at skin pigmentation and think of it like, I, because I'm not going to be, I'm not going to judge Jared by his beard or maybe I do. And I'm like, dude, like your beard is this. And he's like, well, you're clean shaven, but we're not going to call each other beardist because of that or anti-bearders or, or anti-shavers, right? We're not going to put that because that would just seem silly to it, wouldn't it? But we will do in other things. And I think we have to start asking ourselves why. And if, we, if we're willing to entertain the space of the reason why is not because we're innately racist or we're innately bad people or we're innately wanting to make other people less than ourselves. It might be more so that we're, we're trying to find community, sense of belonging, understanding, a place of acceptance. And in that dialogue, at least my opinion, I think that's where we really start to build the bridge because now we're not seeing people as adversaries and enemies, but we're seeing them more as, as human beings like ourselves. And when we start to see the humanness in one another, that's where we can go back and have that five minute conversation and start to learn from one another, start to understand one another, start to grow together. And I, I'm sorry, that was kind of like a long winded diatribe there, Jared. So I'll let you go. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to, first, I'm going to touch on how do we create the empathy, empathy side of things um, that um, I'm going to build on off what you said, too, but I really want to touch on that. So like, you know, everything that you said about, you know, we can see the differences, or we can choose to see the similarities, right? Um, we create all these tribes or things like that for ourselves. Um, I'm going to go there first. Right. So when you're talking about people where they're born in the city or they're born in a rural area, um, you know, they're born, you know, how those kind of demographic things relate to race relations, obviously, right, it, 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 it colors your experiences, color your perception, right? They color your values. But um, I think a, a big issue becomes like, how do we begin to identify ourselves, right? So the reason why you could say something to me about my beard and it wouldn't really like bother me is because I don't identify myself as a bearded man. Like that's not, that's not, that's not a part of my core character, 
mm. right? And who I am, right? Um, you know, whether or not I identify myself, I think we put this, this, this pride sense in, I'm a black man or I'm a white male or I'm a white female or I'm a Christian or I'm a Jew or I'm a Muslim, right? We put that's like hardcore part of our identity, right? Of who we are. Even though we know other Christians, Muslims, Jews, black people, white people that are different from us in a whole bunch of other ways. My first identity is my color. My first identity is my religion, right? Or, you know, you might stratify my first identity is my religion. Second is my color. Third is my blah, 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 right? Once we start to, you know, codify ourselves as individuals that way, we are moving towards the vision, right? As opposed to me codifying, I think we read, I codify myself as, as a, as a human being first, as a man with feelings, you know, if you prick me, do I not bleed, right? If you hurt me, do I not feel all that kind of stuff? Those are the things that identify you first, right? And then if we, if we, if we connected more to our mind in our, in, in terms of our spirit and our thoughts and our beliefs and our feelings and blah, 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 right? Those would be the, 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 the second things of, of, I would say, how we can identify ourselves. So when we talk about creating identity or how do we foster, you know, empathy between people from different cities, religions, regions, and all this kind of stuff and build race relations, strip it away from them to the, to the best of your abilities in, in, in the midst of the conversation, the conversation, right? So your first thing is like when we did our building a bridge, what did we talk about? Commonalities, things that we both saw and experienced growing up. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you talked to the guy from Somalia, he saw Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, yeah. right? And, and, and so, like, what are the things that we both experienced that are similar, right? And, and um, we're looking for those similarities, right? And then from there, build, strip away the differences, right? Go to that second. If you want to build race relations between people, talk to people about their families. Talk to people about, you know, every fucking body has a mom, whether they had a relationship with her or not is a whole completely different story. Everybody has a dad, whether they had a relationship with them or not is a whole nother story, but they have that, right? They have that because we're human beings, we're human animals, right? Everybody's been angry. Everybody's been sad. Everybody's been happy, right? Everybody's read something most of people who have at least a fifth grade education, they've had experiences in first through fifth grade, right? There may be differences in the experiences, but you can talk about that, right? And those are commonalities. And then you build from there, like how can we bridge the gap between the other things where we started to identify ourselves as Christian or country or city or urban or black or white, like people say, kids don't see color. That's fucking right. They're taught and they don't really establish that until later. And it's typically when they're trying to solidify their identity in their teenage, preteen, teen years, right? And they make a decision. And then, you know, you get pushed further and further out as you grow older, right? But everything, almost everything, like, as far as our experiences, we've all had something, a similar experience to somebody else, right? Um, or similar in terms of like how something made us feel, 
in terms of being angry, sad, mad, hurt, betrayed, right? We, we, we all had moms, we all had dads, we all have fucking mixed emotions about our fucking parents, <laughs> right? All of us, the person who tells you, my parents were the best, they were the greatest, they did it, they have mixed the feelings and emotions. They have it, right? They have it. They went to their room one day and said, I fucking hurt them. <laughs> they did. <laughs> it's, just, it's just human. It's human, right? And so when you talk about creating empathy and sympathy, stop looking at the differences between these people in the regions that they grow up in and talk to them both as human beings. And then when you talked about our past and our history, right? And we're like, you know, people started to fight over race, right? I was listening to you. And I like, if people might've noticed, I got away on my phone looking for a quote, right? Um, John, John F. Kennedy said in 1964, after the you know, Cold War, hardcore stuff, mankind must, this is John F. Kennedy, mankind must put an end to war or war will put an end to mankind, right? And why would he say that? Why wouldn't people say that and you know, have you ever seen Shakespeare, Henry V, once more into the breach, my dear friends, and blah, 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 blah. Great war movie, right? Julius Caesar, right? You know, uh, um, um, who else? Uh, you know, even Moses, but uh, uh, what is his name? Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, right? <laughs> All of these great conquerors in history. Like, why is it that you know, someone, a president of the United States of America would say, mankind must put an end to war or war will put an end to mankind. Why? Because as we became, as we could travel from cars, planes, we built bigger bombs, all of these other things, and the world became more connected, right? And you could greatly affect more people for the positive and also for the absolute negative in terms of killing them, right? You have to, and this is what we're trying to do with this group, and this is what we're talking about this. Why we're asking the question, how do we build better race relations? Because we can see that at the end, if we don't come together as human beings, right, we will put an end to this thing we call humanity because we have the capabilities to do it. And so when people talk about where their schism became between, it moved from, you know, religion or people start to look for, for differences um, you know, beyond the, that, that original tribal kind of stuff like that. And you start to like, okay, well, this, this person's black, that person's white, or this person's Christian. Like, you know, it was before. So it was religion and then it became like a black and white thing. How, how did these schisms develop? Because people recognized, right, as the world expanded, as I could travel to more different places, right, they recognized the need to build their group that they identified with. Because now you recognize the numbers of the other groups are large as well, right? So now if I'm going to fight this other group, I can't have a tribal fight, right? I can't have a, I just identify as this, this, and this. I have to massively expand my identification because the group that I'm looking to fight against is massive. So now I'm white first. I'm going to fight against people of a different color, I'm Asian, or Chinese or whatever going to fight against people of a different nationality, right? And because because if I fight as like the people that I really maybe identify with, that group might be small, especially if they're Chinese, right? <laughs> it might be smaller. So I can, or I can say, you know, which is, uh, 
you know, even better, I can identify with people across different colors, creeds, whatever, right? And I can identify basically mainly off of like certain characteristics, beliefs, growth mindset, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, but then it's gonna be hard to denote that friend from foe, right? And so again, it takes me back to John F. Kennedy's, mankind must put it into war or war will put it in to mankind. Mm. Because you cannot, you, 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 we can't, we can't, we can't have, you know, every squabble and every disagreement being solved the way we would have 100, 200, 300 years ago. We just cannot, right? It was, it was an option to beat your opponent into the ground, right? But when, when man had less technology, right? It was an option. But, but, but now it's, it's not, it's not, it's becoming less and less and less and less of an option, less and less and less of an option. One, hopefully we're forcing ourselves to grow into this because we have to, it's an adaptation human beings have to make. Most of your differences are imagined or just as significant as your similarities, right? In fact, if you really codify it, you probably are more similar and you are different. As a matter of fact, DNA tells us exactly that. Psychology tells us exactly that, right? You have variations from the norm, but everybody falls pretty close under that bell curve. Every, you know what I mean? Yes. 70%, 15% on either end. 70% of people fall underneath the middle end of that bell curve in any given, in most things, right? You might be extreme in this two areas, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? And I think it's, Jared, I love what you said. And I think there's a, you know, if we're really committed to learning and growing together, we start to start asking ourselves that question, that uncomfortable question of, and I was telling you, I was wrestling with this earlier today is, is I have to acknowledge, I have to, if I want to learn and grow as a human being, I think, and to seek to more understanding and acceptance, I have to ask the question, then how is that person, those people who would fly a plane into the World Trade Center, how am I like them? How are they like in me? And then what is the difference or why would they choose that? Because I can learn nothing if I just demonize them and say they're completely unlike me, that they're, they're this or that and they're that. Because then in so doing, I'm basically washing my hands and absolving myself of learning. But if I can play in that really uncomfortable space of, well, they have a conviction and ideology, as much as I may say it's misfounded, I have convictions and ideologies and beliefs that they would likely say are misfounded. They are doing something because of, you know, I can start to ask myself these questions because what that does then because I think a lot of our, a lot of our, our, our challenges are, uh, many of them are based off of using extremes on either side as examples, right? So we, we, we use the term racist and the image that pops up for most of our minds is going to be an extremist on one side or the other. It's going to be the, the, the radical over here, the radical over here. And then we immediately, I think in our defensiveness, we'll start to say, well, no, that's not me. I'm not like that at all. You know? Mm -hmm. And so, and the challenge with that is, is when we do that, it's absolving us from learning. It's absolving us from learning on either side. 
I think where we can start to ask ourselves the question is, well, how am I like that person? And so what, what does that person believe that would lead them to those behaviors? What are they really after? What do they really want? And we may start to see that on some very basic level, their wants are the similar. And now I, I, and I say that because my energy is not interested in, in trying to talk and deal with people on these extreme outsides. Like they're going to be over there right now. And it's just, I think it's wasted energy for me if I'm playing in that five minute where I am deeply fascinated and immensely curious. And right now is focusing my energy on this, on people like we have in the group or in this place where we're, we're, we're arm to arm shoulder touching. And we may have some differences, whether it's our religious difference, how we grew up, where we grew up, all these types of things. But we're, we're, we're kind of here accepting these similarities that we're, we're, we're all wanting to build this bridge. And then my belief system is, is that if we do that, each of us then touches someone else who then touches someone else who touches someone else who touches someone else. And eventually there's going to be this chain that reaches out to these outsides. I don't think we are going to affect change on the extremes. If we come together in the middle and we start saying, well, they're not like us. We're not like them because now look at us. We're this big hodgepodge of, of love, you know, black, white, brown, green. We're all here. That's just going to make them feel even more alienated. That's just going to make them cling even tighter to their groups. That's going to make them even cling tighter to the beliefs, ideologies, whatever that is that draws them together. Because now we're basically doing the, Oh, here we are. Na, 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 you know, that we all <laughs> have to deal with on the playground. That doesn't make anybody feel good. And so where we can, I think, grow together as opposed to coming together in a circle. And the challenge with the circle is, is at some point the circle closes off. And if you're on the outside of the circle, you're on the outside. But when you build a bridge, you're extending, right? Yeah. You're opening space on all sides. And I think that's a really beautiful metaphor for all of us to consider is, is how is to ask ourselves a question, where might we be closed off to people who don't believe like we believe, who don't think how we think? Where can we play in that uncomfortable space of trying to understand why someone is that way? And where can we begin to extend our arms? Not necessarily, I, 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 you know, I play in this, this space of ideas, but like I said, I don't have the interest nor the energy to expend going over here right now. Where I think my greatest work and service is being able to have these conversations with folks and then maybe somewhere down the line, as this begins to happen, maybe I get curious and I feel like, okay, I'll go over here and just, just you know, have that dialogue. Maybe not, I don't know. But where I really think that greater change has happened is it's the dominoes not fall from the outside in, from the inside out. It's the it's dominoes fall from the outside and in that we open up and we expand and we begin to touch one another that way. And I... You know, I, I was telling Jared beforehand, I was saying, man, I was really wrestling with, is that just overly idyllic, idyllic? But the more I play in the space of humans and why we do what we do, the more I have to come to embrace that, whether you are the, the head of the Ku Klux Klan, you are Osama bin Laden, you are Donald Trump, you are, you know, Martin Luther King, you are whomever when you were born and you were a little baby these weren't the thoughts that were going through your head 
they like us were probably just wanting to have attention, wanting to get it love, wanting to be accepted, wanting to be fed, wanting to be nurtured, wanting to be cared for. They like us probably grew up making up little stories and make believe and finding toys to play with and, you know, going through these and then whatever happened in life and choices they made after that took us on different paths. And it's a hard one to play with you all. And I get it. Like it's a hard thing, I think, to accept that humans are not their behaviors. Behaviors are behaviors and humans do behaviors. And one of the challenges is, and I think in all of our growth, and if we really are truly going to build a bridge is we have to start to give grace to behaviors. It doesn't mean we have to agree with them, but what we have to start resisting is the temptation of labeling a human as their behavior. Because as soon as we do that, we take away humanists. As soon as we take away humanists, we take away our own ability to learn. And then what we end up defaulting to is we default to growing in the people who are like-minded us, alienating the people who aren't like us. And then it goes back to this, this whole thing. And I just, I don't think that's the most productive thing. And I'll also say that by saying that it's totally okay to have people that you have zero desire to ever hang out with and talk to. I definitely have a whole list of people. I could give two shits about it. But Well, okay. So when you talk about like seeing a human being and, you know, not necessarily uh, identifying by them, their behaviors, I don't necessarily agree with that statement. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's fine. Right. Um, if that's what you want to do, if you want to judge a human being by, by their behavior, but I think where we fall into a trap is, right, the guys who fly a plane into a building or the guy who goes out and shoots up a whole crowd of people in, in Las Vegas, Nevada, right? We apply that prototype to anybody that looks like them, yeah, right? Or comes from a similar background to them. And that is not the case. Just the same as we can talk about a Appalachian born white kid that reached up and became successful or a kid born in Compton that reached up and became successful. Obviously, every fucking kid in Compton is not the same. Obviously, every kid in Appalachia is not the same, right? We can talk about that, but we do we make that connection? Every kid in Appalachia is not the same. Every white person from Appalachia is not the same. Every black kid growing up in Compton is not the same, right? Every fucking rich excuse my language, white kid or rich black kid that grows up, it's not the same, right? <laughs> Every heiress is not the same, right? You know, but we, but we want to see this extreme, right? And say that that's everybody. We want to say a Paris Hilton is every rich, you know, white dilettante is, behaves in this manner, right? We make a movie called White Chicks and say they're all the same, right? <laughs> we laugh at it; and it's funny, but like you know, like oh, quintessential. But no, some of them have great work ethics, right? Some of them, you know, drive. Don't like. Don't, I'm not a fucking Trump fan. Ivanka Trump is obviously not. Is nothing like Paris Hilton. Uh, you know, you you understand what I'm saying to you, right? Or her husband, Jared Kushner, is nothing like blah 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 blah. Maybe right, whatever, right? Um, you know, and so you you see that. George and George Bush, Jed Bush, nothing on, right? <laughs> like people are people, right? And so when we see these extremes that are not like us, most like visibly or, you know, religiously or whatever, by these big micro things, when we see these extreme versions, we want to place everybody in that group that's not like us 
like that extreme. I think that's the major issue is that we, we, when we don't, and it, when it's the extreme of something that we understand, which is why I'm getting in an argument with people about Black Lives Matter and blah, 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 which Black Lives Matter is not a religion. It's not a whatever, the, the BLM organization. Like when I get up, when I get in an argument with people about that, this is going to be some mind of passion, guys, right? But this is <laughs> when I get into an argument with people uh, when they talk about, you know, Black Lives Matter and they put up these, well, Black Lives Matter wants this. And I'm like, well, that's obviously a fucking lie, right? Like that's not, that's not one, I don't agree with the Black Lives Matter organization, but it doesn't say anything like that. They're like, well, you know, it's a lot of people, you may not feel that way, but there's a lot of people on that side of the argument that feel that way. And I'm like, no, you probably heard two extremists say something, right? Similar to that, right? And you magnified that to the whole group. Yet, the same person I was arguing with, when you make a comment that someone miscrewed and took as racist and told you a racist for it, you got incensed, right? <laughs> and it's like, you, you did the same thing <laughs> to, to this group that you are fucking fighting against in your own statements and comments. Like, stop taking, you know, oh, I stand for this extreme fucking comment and saying, well, everybody that, is, that, that believes that must agree with that one person 110%. That is never, ever the case. Every Christian doesn't believe every fucking thing their pastor says on goddamn Sunday. They don't. They don't agree with it. And I'm talking about one church, one building, a hundred fucking people, every person, they could be in there clapping, applauding, great sermon, and they probably like, uh, I don't know about that piece, that piece, that piece. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, and that's, and that's, that's real. That's the reality of what human beings are. And that's okay. That fire yeah fire stop trying to look at this extreme one piece and expand it to the whole because it's never the case and so when you talk to an individual talk to the individual talk to the individual even if they tell you they stand for something that you're disagreeing with understand their why how do they codify and then if they still say shit that you don't agree with hey man i can't talk to you about that yeah. or you know because <laughs> But don't go to the next person that we could even be standing next to them and think that they have the same exact reason and beliefs yes. for don't think yes. it. They could be standing right next to them and you can find that you talk to them and can talk to them for fucking hours. Um, let's wrap, we, I have to hop off here in a few minutes. So let's touch on Patty's question. Oh, oh shucks. Yes, COVID. Uh, she, Patty asks, I'm wondering, and then Richard, mechanisms for discussing racism with children play with some of what we talked about in here and uh, give us some feedback on it. And then we can, and then maybe we can expand on what you were saying. Cause I think there's, I think some of what we chatted about today could be applicable. And I think it'd be worth a, a deeper discussion. So just, just kind of uh, see what comes up from today. And then I, I, I think that'd be a really cool conversation to have maybe in a little bit more depth. And then Patty asked, I'm wondering if COVID with the aspects of isolation help to improve race relations as people have more opportunities to read books and or watch documentaries, or does it increase the divide because people are not in contact with each other? What impact does social interaction play? You wanna go first on this one? So yeah, so I think it, I think it did two things. I think it did both actually. So um, 
which probably ultimately made the schism a little bit deeper. So, <laughs> so I think what it did was it allowed people who didn't think something was a problem to have not enough going on in their life that they could pay attention enough to learn and see it as a problem, right? Bingo, right? That's good. I'm kind of getting empathetic and I understand what somebody else is going through, blah, 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 right? But at the same time, right, it allowed, because you have people migrating and defining themselves into a group, right, or redefining themselves as a group, there are people on the other end migrating and redefining themselves into a group, right? And so what you did was you, I think, so in some senses, COVID allowed the numbers in terms of tribalism, right, as opposed to people building small tribes around, I like video games, I like basketball and sports and I like blah 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 which probably bridges a lot of gaps right they moved into COVID anti-COVID Black Lives Matter anti-Black Lives Matter two big groups so you you had people who maybe didn't think that Black Lives Matter was an issue and they like oh so fucking it is an issue right and they became aware right you have people who you know um believe in big pharma and medicine and blah 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 and they, you know, kind of, I don't know. I, the COVID thing confuses the fuck out of me. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, um, I can't dig on that too, too, too much as far as like, in terms of like how groups formed around it <laughs> in terms of division. Like that, that, that makes my head want to explode when I like think about just the argument about a mask is just. But you know, it, it, it plays into what we've been talking about today in looking at how we, how we look for similarities or differences because we're seeing it happen in real time, yeah. right? We're seeing it happen in real time. So now we're forming tribes, communities. Doesn't matter what your skin color is. Doesn't matter what your religion is. All that matters is if you believe in wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, <laughs> right? And I've seen, like, I've seen terms now adopted. If you're not wearing a mask, you're a rat licker. And a rat licker <laughs> refers to somebody during the bubonic plague who would go and rick a, lick a rat right because they didn't think rats would cause the plague people so, spend the time to find these derogatory terms exactly, exactly. So, that just trips me out like who sits there and like what can i call these people yeah <laughs> let me research exactly <laughs> people who are who are looking to form a tribe community around something are going to then find terminology to help further the it's not enough that you're wearing a mask or not wearing a mask that's a difference in of itself now it's also well hey let's let's add some incendiary language to it yeah to who can be the most abusive yeah yeah who can who can really hit them hard let's yeah and so then the person that's on the fence and they're getting name called now a rat licker what are they going to do they're not going to say oh yeah you know you're right i am a rat licker i'm going to start wearing masks no they're going to say put up the double salute and say well i was thinking about it before but now i'm definitely not going to do it not because it's it's about health or anything but it's specifically about giving this to you because you're calling me a name and you don't even know me and you're judging me oh yeah right i've been there i can't lie i've had somebody to no, almost nothing is worse in, in life than when somebody tells you the right thing to do Right. Or so, okay. All right. Maybe, maybe it's not the right thing. I, I don't want to, I don't want to, I'm just going to talk about from personal experience. I'm not saying wearing a mask or not wearing a mask is right or wrong. I don't really give a flying. It's just so stupid to me. Right. But anyway, my thing is I, I know that I've had people like correct me and stuff. 
or like insinuate that I could have done something a different way. And I'm like, and I heard and saw the validity in their statement and it just pushed me harder in the opposite direction. Just pushed me to rebel even further. Right. And, and I have, I have, you know, been there. Like, look, it was like, or like I made an insulting, insulting, they insulted me. Right. And, but I knew I was wrong when I did what I did, but now that they insulted me, I'm doubling the fuck down. Yes. Right. And, and I've, I've definitely been there. Um, you know, and I think we all have, I think that's also a human trait. Like, you know, and, and we, we're working on getting above it, you know, as a, you know, wisdom and blah, 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 and taking criticism, but it, it definitely happens. And, but I, I can, I can say I've been guilty of that. I definitely have. Or, like my wife will tell me to do something or maybe you should have done it that way. Yeah. And I'm like, she's probably fucking right, but fuck her. I'm going to yeah, see how yeah. long I can do then, it this way and get it done. Yeah. And then <laughs> call up our friends and say, you know what she did? She's telling me to do this. And so then our buddies being our good buddies, they're going to say, dude. So, oh, did I ever tell you the story? So I guys don't know this, but I have a few friends that are like clinical psychologists and they're like, you know, we talk and whatever. Right. And so I, I have one buddy that I call whenever I have those kind of issues. And he's such a fucking asshole. He'd be like, well, <laughs> let's break it down. Like, let's be honest. Like, where did that come from? And does it have any validity? Are you calling me and talking to me because you know it has some validity? He's like, fuck, he's a fucking, I'm like, you motherfucker. But I call him because I know I'm going to get that fucking, yeah. that reality check. Yeah. Right. That, that, uh, that, those are, yeah, uh, those are such great friends to have when you want to learn, and they're the worst friends to have when you want to be right. Yes. 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 Um, they're the worst. You know, so I don't even, like, if I really want to be right and I know I'm right, I don't even fucking call them. Yeah, but if, exactly. I'm like, if I'm, like, actually having, you know, that spiritual, you need those people in your life. And you need to reach out to them probably more often than not. But if you get a chance to be petty and you can fucking live with that, I'm okay with that, too. <laughs> I'll just, and then I'll just really quickly, because I have to talk here, off in a moment. For Patty, from my perspective, I think, uh, you know, I'm kind of in the same, so I'll say this, I wouldn't be, Jared and I wouldn't be probably having this conversation if the situation of COVID hadn't have created a dynamic where it brought to the attention all that was going on. And it gave, like Jared said, people had enough time on their hands to pay a little bit more attention and we were frustrated enough as it is with what was going on COVID, with the misinformation, with not knowing what was going on. And so when, I think when things happened with George Floyd and not only was it horrible what we saw, but then when we all heard him calling for his mom, like Jared said earlier, all of us have a mom. And it was this collective thing where everybody could look at it and look beyond whatever and say that was wrong, right? And, and, and we, we have this group Right, because now we're all kind of united over this, or we shouldn't say we're all, a lot of us are united over this. Well, why is there so much misinformation? What are we supposed to believe? We're frustrated with COVID. We're frustrated because our life is put on hold, all these types of things. There's a, there's a vehicle to channel it, right? We have some sort of vehicle to express it in. And I think for me, in my perspective, I'm, I'm super grateful for that because this this time and spending this time and talking with Jared and having this time with all of you, it's been some of the most eye-opening, insightful, inspiring, uh, just, uh, you know, f I don't know, I, I don't have the, all the words for the adjectives I wanna use, 
but it's just been it's if it like I Jared and I will often finish these conversations and we'll in separate dialogues with one another. We just say one of the things that we really enjoy about doing this is it feels right. It feels right. And it and and I think that is a really incredible thing. I think that on the other side, like Jared already said, for some it's going to have the opposite effect where instead of having a growth mindset, there's going to be a fixed mindset. There's going to be a even more because now you have groups coming together, which makes them even more alienated. And we're calling them names, extremists, whatever it is, where they're just thinking that they're believing how they're supposed to believe. And they're not necessarily making it about this, but they're getting lumped into groups. Right. I've, I've seen friends on social media make comments about people that they don't even know, but they're lumping them into groups because they choose to show up, behave and practice in a certain way. And, and it's, it's fascinating because as Jared was saying earlier, they're literally on this side doing almost exactly what they see on this side doing that they don't like. And I think what's happening with this is, I don't know if it's, it's necessarily increasing a divide as much as it is exposing some of the hypocrisy that all of us, that I shouldn't say all of us, exposing some of the hypocrisy that many of us operate our lives on. How we will, we will vilify one by excusing another. We will demonize one and then absolve another. And I think that in the short term, it is fucking horribly uncomfortable. It is horribly uncomfortable to have to sit and look at the person in the mirror and acknowledge that, hey, you know what? <laughs> hey, guy, you, you, you have some work to do. Like, there's some stuff there you need to go because it's way easier to just say, you know, that person's just a, a racist or that person's just this or that person's just that or that person. And then and, and excuse ourselves from it. I think, though, that one of the incredible opportunities that COVID does present is it gives us time to reflect, ask questions. I've heard more people ask questions who would normally just accept things as it is than I ever have before. And I think to ask questions is a beautiful thing. I think the quality of our lives will largely be determined by the quality of questions we ask ourselves and others. And I think what's happening now is for many of us is we're not accepting things how they have always been, whether it's the way society functions, whether it's the way politicians operate, whether it's the role that we give athletes and celebrities and influence in our lives or it's just how we how we interact with our friends and our children i think that asking more questions can always be a good thing and i think that the more we start to ask questions of ourselves and others that's where we really grow and i think that's not only that but that's how we learn to build a better bridge so i have to hop off everyone though this is uh, this i told jared i have a hard stop right now at this time and Jared, as always, man, I, I appreciate you, dude. I, I this was enjoyed this. I appreciate you too, and we can go back and forth all day long. I, yeah, I twenty things I want to say while you're talking before is awesome, man. Yeah. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. Where's the? Uh...